Welcome to the Three Lines of Defence podcast, the show that provides in-depth discussion into the world of audit, compliance and risk. We bring valuable insights, market information and career advice from industry leaders. Here's your host, Mark Enticott. On today's show, we have Emily Wright, who is the Global Head of Compliance Surveillance at Standard Charter Bank. Emily started her career in executive search before moving into human resources with Lehman Brothers in London in 2007. In 2009, Emily joined New Edge in London as a senior director in HR. Emily then moved to head of core compliance, business risk and control for APAC in 2013 with ICAP. After almost three years with ICAP, Emily joined JP Morgan in Hong Kong as executive director, core compliance and progressed to head of surveillance for APAC. In 2019, Emily joined Standard Charter Bank in her current role. Emily, welcome to the show. Thank you. Good to be here, Mark. So I'd like to start off with a little bit about your early life and where you grew up. Yeah, sure. Um, so I was born and raised in Melbourne, Australia. Um, we did a short period during my primary years in Singapore, but went back to Melbourne. And then when I was 16 years old, we relocated to the UK, um, to home counties just outside of London. And I finished school in the UK and went to university there and started my career there. And in terms of um, your career, you started off, as I mentioned, in executive search and you progressed through HR. Can you talk to me a little bit more about uh, your career progression and what ultimately made you develop your career within banking and financial services and ultimately within compliance where you are now? Sure. It's uh, definitely a non-linear career, so it probably needs a little bit of explaining. Um, I left university, unlike many in my peer group, not really knowing what I wanted to do. Um, And I had the privilege of being at a a university in the centre of London with access to the city and a lot of the big graduate programs that recruited on the milk ground there. And the city was compelling, but I hadn't really ever wanted to go into banking. I'd, I'd gone through a process of almost deciding to do a PhD and not. Um, and I, I think that process left me floundering a little as to whether or not I could commit to a city career, which is the opposite, I think, of, of what I was viewing as an academic career and contributing to academia. And what really happened is going through the milk round process, I met a lot of recruiters. And um, one of the executive search firms I met in the process uh, who had a graduate program was compelling enough to say, if you do this for two years, you'll learn an awful lot about the city. And if you want a career there, you could pursue a career there. You'd know it, um, but it doesn't commit you to it. Where if I look at the conversations I'd had with um, Arthur Anderson at the time to date me, um, but also Goldman and Lehman and some of the other banks where I'd gone through similar interviews, it it was very much more they wanted that commitment and that passion that you were going to pursue this career and I didn't feel I had that so executive search for me was almost like a stepping stone to work out what I wanted and I did hope to work out what I wanted to do um, but as you can see from my career it's it's continued to progress in a non-linear way so um, maybe I have maybe I haven't I've enjoyed a lot of what I've done along the way um, so yeah so executive search started out with a small firm where I learned the products that are in the city, the way the city works, buy side, sell side, insurance companies. So I kind of really learned the lay of the land. And I did that in the middle of the city of London. So, you know, we were just behind Leadenhall Market and you've got the Lloyd building there and the LSEs down the road. And, and you have access, I think, in that square mile um, to understanding a lot of where financial services come from, from the, the big bang onwards. Um, so that was, it was exciting and it was fun. And we had a good training program. So I did learn a lot about the product. But I also met a lot of very senior people, as you will know from your career in search, 
you at a very early level in, in executive search have access to super senior people who talk about strategies and the culture of firms and the industry and that makes it incredibly compelling and you have these fantastic conversations with people and help them shape not only their careers but how they build the teams that they're responsible for. So for a number of years that was very exciting. Um, I, I think for me the realisation was is that I'm not a salesperson and recruitment to be successful in it beyond the very junior level really requires um, an element of sales uh, unless you're going to Tell me otherwise. <laughs> no, look, I would 100% agree with you. I think, um, you know, that recruitment and executive search is a sales role um, slash consulting role. And I think it's very similar to, you know, other things like Big Four where it's the same thing ultimately as you get more senior. Yeah, and it has elements of both. And I think the consulting element I really liked, um, the content of a lot of those meetings I really enjoyed. Uh, and calibrating people, sitting with people and understanding where they're coming from and what they want and, and listening to where they talk about how they perform their roles was all very compelling. The sales element really didn't work for me. So I started to look quite proactively and I couldn't pretend this was an easy process. As somebody who had not gone to the graduate programs and gone and learned a product in financial services, um, no longer in that graduate catchment age, I was sort of two, three years out of university, it wasn't an easy thing to decide to change career path. And I spent quite a long time. HR in every conversation ended up being the place where a financial services company could get comfortable that I could make sense because I would come from an external recruitment role into an internal recruitment role and they were happy to do a plug and play. Um, so it took some time and it probably, if I'm honest, took me 24 months where really the last where I was, I was quite committed to finding something and I met a lot of people and I talked to a lot of recruiters and leveraged what small network I had. Um, but I did find a role that wasn't a recruitment role. Uh, and I, I joined Lehman Brothers, as you say, it was in an HR role and it was actually the diversity and inclusion specialist. And I suppose my in was that the diversity and inclusion agenda at Lehman Brothers was, although incredibly mature in, in the US um, and well-developed in Europe, uh, there was a real drive from the Europe and Asia management to want to enhance the program across those two regions to level up with where the US had got to in sophistication. And one of the aspects they were looking at was increasing their representation, particularly of senior women. So there was an element of having to drive headhunting um, relationships and the internal recruitment strategies and making that part of diversity and inclusion. And that gave me my little foot in the door. And then the rest of it really, I think, was chemistry and interviews. and and Lehman was an institution that did back people to do something a little bit different. They didn't expect that plug-and-play arrangement to necessarily land. I went to work for a, a group of people, um, both my manager and, and his manager, the, the head of HR, were those people who were happy to look for talent that they could train rather than to have people come in with existing knowledge and having done the same thing before. So I had a little bit of luck on my side. Um, it was probably, it was, as I looked through... Um, the, some of the questions you wanted to ask for this it was probably the job where I had the most fun it was incredibly enjoyable it was a wonderful institution to go and work for um, and diversity and inclusion was probably the most um, different but also useful thing I could have spent two years doing in my career I call on that knowledge every single day in every leadership role I've had ever since and uh, one of the things that I accidentally got from it was it was um discussions with very well-read people on topics that aren't just about diversity and inclusion because when you, you go to that canary in the mine shaft, if you will, you know, the, the diversity and inclusion population, 
all you're really doing is looking at all the major things that leaders and institutions need to be thinking about, and you're taking them to the place where they're most acutely important if they're not working well. Um, and so uh, it, it was it was fantastically fun, but it was also really beneficial element to the leader I'd ended up becoming, uh, and, and it was really enjoyable. Um, it was also really different for me because uh, the way that the recruitment industry is structured, I'd previously worked in privately owned and often partnership-run entities uh, in, in the recruitment firms I'd worked for, where I was for the first time in a, a publicly listed large institution. Um, and I, I think culturally for me, I decided that really that made a lot more sense. Working for entrepreneurs in that smaller environment hadn't felt nearly as comfortable as being a corporate citizen in a large financial services institution. So I made a very critical decision there that I wanted to work in, if not banks, certainly large financial services institutions as a preference over those smaller entities. And from your side, when you look at your career, has there been a particular person that has been a key mentor for you? And if so, how do you feel that that person has helped develop your career and leadership style? Um, so I've been very lucky. I've had different mentors at different points because I've I've had probably four different sections to my career, and in each one of those, you tend to find mentors that that help you through. Um, in the recruitment phase, probably not. I, I would argue I was lacking a mentor, and that was why it was probably so hard to find an alternative career path to follow. When I landed at Lehman, there were mentors available all over the place. Um, it was was one of those places where you could find female leaders who wanted to sponsor you as a young woman in the institution. Um, I had a boss who behaved very much like a mentor because this was a career development, career change role that I took. Um, and indeed, the head of the function, uh, the head of HR, was the person I went to work for after my role at Lehman and had been a mentor and then became my boss later on. So I think in this role and developing myself as an HR professional, which happened firstly for these two years in, in um, diversity and inclusion, and then when Lehman Brothers went bankrupt um, and we all went to find new roles, and I moved into um, a role at, at blockchain as part of, you know, in an HR role overseeing the CMAC Calion merger. So it was a merger and acquisition context. Um, I then ended up with a different set of mentors because that was a very different ask. Uh, and there were different skills you needed and different styles and, and different responsibility. Um, so perhaps I, if I talk about blockchain, I... I then got different mentors for as I moved into my compliance role. Um, so, so Lehman Brothers was, was fantastic. It was a great jumping off point, unfortunately far too early and, and not something I would have wanted to jump from, but circumstances were what they were. Um, but I went into a role with a Lehman leader, as I mentioned, the former head of, of HR at, at Lehman moved in to be the global head of the HR merger, which was New Edge. It became New Edge, but it was the CMAT Cali on some um, Stockton and Credit Agricole merging together to form this really significant size brokerage firm. And what was amazing there was just the build scope. Um, so neither HR functions from either of the legacy banks or the parent banks had been able to move into this new entity. So we were building from the ground up and it was everything from new HR systems, hiring new teams and formalizing everything from grievance processes to policies to procedures to the recruitment strategy, um, online training. And I ended up um, almost as a jack-of-all-trades, uh, including a diversity and inclusion specialist. So we, we did build a, a, a D&I program, but we did it alongside all of those other really fundamental pillars of HR. 
And I was able to move around and navigate through all of them. As each build happened, I got my hands very dirty and then we would hire people to take on those programs right up to um, really the, the global recruitment program, which I ended up running and, and keeping and staying in my portfolio, um, which was great. So there was a huge amount of technology. If you think about the platforms you engage, so we, we brought in um, the HRIS systems, we brought in online training programs and the training program development was really one of my first in to that second line control function because the biggest users of that platform, and they became some of my biggest stakeholders and my best relationships, were obviously the compliance department because they had all these regulatory requirements to roll out compliance training. But I had the training program and the school and the funding to build that. So we worked in very close partnership. And as the bank then also moved to building that second line to rolling out RCSAs, they called on me as, as somebody who rolled out programs to be part of that process. And so it, it was, an, again, one of those um, coincidental things that happened. I never meant to get diversity and inclusion background. I never meant to get the compliance training and the RCSA work that I had. But they've ended up being such fundamental parts of my career in the future, and I couldn't have planned for it. They were opportunistic, I guess. Um, so my time there really changed a lot, and I, I call it, one part of a career path but it was so many different streams and it was all under the banner of HR one of the interesting things working in a French French institution under French regulators is their expectation of what sits in HR and the role that HR plays as a control function is very different than I think some of the other big um, regulators so what, what do I mean by that HR was seen as one of the core control functions for the bank. So everything that related to human data, people data and employee data came from them and we were the go-between even for what at the time we were calling our second line functions of risk and compliance. We had a huge amount of regulatory interaction and again engaging with French regulators spelled by HR and that was part of my role. So a sort of a quasi-type compliance role started to emerge in that space even though I was in HR. Um, and my mentors there, it was interesting, it was the first time I'd had access to really directly to a CEO of a, of a global entity um, and was accountable to him on reporting on some of these aspects. But also, um, we had a huge build program. Um, and so, although it was driven by recruitment, it had big business deliverables. And so, again, knowing the three major regional CEOs and being accountable to them for who we'd hired and how the program was running and whether or not they were getting what they needed from a business perspective was all new to me and was a huge learning experience. But actually, one of them became um, probably my mentor through the four years there, um, which involved everything from this very dynamic role, but also I got married while I was there. I had my first child while I was there. I went on maternity leave. I came back from maternity leave. And that, I think, was a period where if you didn't have a mentor, it could probably be quite destabilizing. And, and it was a little bit anyway. Um but having somebody you could ring and say, oh, I'm feeling quite uncomfortable about coming back in and I'm not sure that I'm ready. And it was just helpful. Um, and it, as it happened, it wasn't a woman, it was a man. Um, but he was an experienced manager and he'd done this before. And I, I benefited from having that sounding board that was outside of my reporting line and, and outside of my function. Um, so that was, that was a, a great mentor relationship for non-career purposes, actually, as it turned out. It was more the person that kept me in my career rather than panicking and perhaps off-ramping myself and not going straight back in, um, which is what I did. Um, so that was my, my soft-gen chapter. I then, for personal reasons, um, ended up with some 
family back in Melbourne who I really needed to be closer to and also with a new baby, um, the, the London-Melbourne divide suddenly became incredibly big and I didn't want to stay based in London. So for personal reasons, started to look at roles both in Australia and Asia um, just to try and reduce that, that travel and that time difference from family. Um, Australian market was a very tough place, I found, um, for somebody who had a British educational background and a, a London-based work experience, and I, I couldn't find an in there. But I did, using my Lehman network, again, find a role in Asia. Um, and it required a career change, although it was so exciting that I decided that I, I didn't need to stay in the HR space at this stage. And, and the personal pressure to get closer to home was quite great. And that was really where I took what looks like I suppose the biggest career change. I moved into second line risk and compliance roles from that HR role. Um, and it was someone who knew me from Lehman Days. So again, there was that little piece of Lehman background of we hire good people and we make sure that we help them learn the role uh, rather than a plug and play approach, which I think often prevails in some, some organizations and some cultures. So I took on a role that was building operational risk and core compliance frameworks that had been implemented in London at the head office and needed to be rolled out across across APAC. So I moved to Hong Kong and did things that were sort of familiar from my soft gen days. Not all of it was new, but I had such a steep learning curve and particularly the core compliance piece from a technical perspective was very, very new other than the content I'd worked on on training programs, um, which I suppose is compliance 101 um, pretty much. Um, but I also, because I'd moved locations, was learning about the working culture in Asia. And it wasn't just Hong Kong. So although I was based in Hong Kong, we had big offices in Australia and Sydney and in Tokyo and in Singapore. And we, I was in Jakarta quite regularly. And all of those places, as you would know, working across the region, have very different cultural working environments. Uh, and we were rolling out a program that touched every single one of them. And it included, you know, collaborating with desk heads to get us desk done, putting surveillance in place and getting people comfortable around being monitored. We were putting in place desk reviews. And we had teams of people that were now engaging with the business from a control perspective in a very structured, programmatic way, which was a big shift um, at, at ICAP where that hadn't been the case. I think for most interdealer brokers, they hadn't had that level of scrutiny. Um, and therefore, it I said earlier, didn't I? You're going to call me out on this. I said I wasn't a salesperson. I think this is probably the hardest sales role I should ever have taken <laughs> on. <laughs> it required an awful lot of convincing of people. Um, that was probably the, the stakeholder role um, where there was a lot of face time and a lot of getting comfortable with people. And, and how to get people comfortable in Tokyo, I needed to go to my management who knew where I was coming from, you know, more of my British management, and say, how do you do this with Japanese men? And then how do you do this in Jakarta with um, female desk heads? And, and mm. so just the cultural differences across that whole business um, took a while. And I had some really good advice at times, again, from mentors that I picked out, both in the London office where I had some really strong people who had done this before and helped me from afar, but also a couple of people I found in the Asia context who had learned the lessons the hard way. Um, some really great advice that got me through a couple of really difficult and uncomfortable mistakes. Particularly, I'm going to say Japan. Japan is a tough place for a woman who is younger than the stakeholder she's interacting with on our men to necessarily get it right all the time. And you put into that perhaps my Australian background and my 
my poor briefing in some of those cases. And I, yeah, there was some, there was some things that didn't go brilliantly that I had to then fix. Um, so it was a huge learning curve. It was, I think it was probably, if you look at my career since, there was another penny dropped for me there. Um, and one of that, and that big piece for me was, is that that compliance space and that programmatic control framework, it was all the things I had liked in HR that hadn't perhaps been as structured or as programmatic as I would have liked, it fitted very well. It made a lot of sense to me. And I found that I could sit and read the FDA handbook and found it compelling and it was intuitive to me. And so compliance started to become the, okay, that's the career path I prefer to follow. And it probably took the first 12 months in that role for that to really become something I was conscious of. So that was definitely where it formulated. Yeah. When when you look back on your career, has there been a significant turning point that has resulted in where you are today? Would that be ICAP? Um, ICAP was where I worked out that I liked compliance. But I because I I didn't accidentally fall into the role, but I took the role without having gone looking for a compliance role. I'm not sure if it was ICAP or if it was the personal it was the opportunity was presented because of mm. a personal requirement that I needed to meet. And I, I think that was if I look at all of the opportunities I've taken, I haven't necessarily gone looking for them to become an HR person, to become a compliance person. I've taken opportunities and seen how they fit. And uh, look, sometimes I've had advice from, from both mentors and from friends who have said, you're going to end up a jack of all trades. Nobody knows what you can do. Are you really sure you want to change career again? Um, and it's interesting. I, I, I sit here today as somebody who is very, very definitely a surveillance specialist and I, my current role I have because I come with the surveillance experience I've had and I can run a surveillance program and I'm, I'm familiar with the tools and the themes. However, I don't feel any more comfortable in my career and my ability to add value at an institution than I did as Lehman Brothers went down and I went out onto the street to find the next role as somebody who at that time had recruitment and diversity in her portfolio and was looking for the next opportunity that was going to be interesting and compelling. And not only did I feel just as confident then, I found a compelling opportunity and it did not only develop my career, but it was engaging and it was interesting and it was worth getting out of bed every day to go and do and I did add value. So I, it's interesting, that specialism piece. Um, I, I never really went looking for it, um, although I really enjoy what I do today. I don't know if I would have enjoyed it if I'd gone into a compliance role very, very early on from perhaps a, a graduate program. I don't know. I, if I look at my career history, I'm not sure I would have spent 20 years doing the same thing. <laughs> Maybe that's, that's more about me than, than others. Um, compliance is a very diverse and compelling space to work. But I've, I've benefited hugely from having some of those other experiences from outside of the compliance realm as well. Throughout your career, you've hired a lot of people and you've managed significant sized teams. What, what do you look for in terms of characteristics when you're hiring a new person? Um, so yes, and it, it's really interesting. I, uh, I don't try to look for specific characteristics, but I do rely on gut instinct. I'm one of those, um, intuitive people. And I think it came from running just so many interviews with so many people during my first five years of my career in recruitment roles. Um, there's something around how an interview unfolds that I either get comfortable or I don't. Um, sometimes for very technical roles, I will focus on the technical requirements. But, but in the role I'm in at the moment, I sort of have the privilege of of not having to do the technical interview and make sure people can actually do the job. 
Um, there are there are managers directly, and there are peer groups who, who rely I rely on to give their view on that. What I tend to look for is chemistry, and chemistry comes, I think, for me from the way that people communicate, and they'll they'll talk with either passion or with interest in the things that we're talking about doing. Um, I'm, I'm always pretty keen to have, and particularly as you get to slightly more senior level for leadership roles, VPs and above, for people to be prepared to question status quo. Because the other big theme through my career is I've come into huge change programs every time. Build this, change this, we're starting from scratch on this. And if somebody can't question the status quo, then it's very difficult, I think, to get them comfortable with change. So. Uh, one of the biggest challenges I, I do have when I come into those change roles is saying, well, okay, just because we've done things this way before, guys, doesn't mean that it's the right way to do it going forward. And it's a mindset. It, it, everyone can think critically, but uh, not everybody's necessarily worked in roles where they've been perhaps given that opportunity or it's been the right thing. So I, I like people who can question things and simplify them, improve them, enhance them, build efficiency, but who are happy to come up the chain and say to their managers, this isn't as good as we can get it. Here's what I propose for optimization. And I think if those things come out in an interview, I'm pretty happy to take that that Lehman Brothers approach I've referenced a couple of times of you don't have to be plug and play in our thing. You don't have to come in knowing the tools and the systems and have done it before. You've got to come in with requisite knowledge for the right level, but everything else is more about an attitude and, and, and a style. Um, and, and that's, I think, probably the biggest theme I've got for how I've hired across at least the last, seven or eight years worth of team yeah i think that's interesting because i think your your early background would have definitely helped um in in your roles within the second line and i think you're right in terms of you know i I think there's people out there who are good at reading people and there's people who are not good at reading people and and i agree with what you're saying is you know having done recruitment for a long time you can sit there and really just assess someone and at times you don't even realise you're doing it um, and you walk away with a feeling of, yes, that person's right or that person's not right. And I don't know if you've found this, but even sometimes it, it can be hard to pinpoint what's not right, but you just get this gut feeling of, no, this is not, this is not, this person's not going to be the right person for the role. Yes, definitely. And I, in fact, the, the, the harder aspect of that role for the recruiter is, is that it's, it's not you and your team. And although you know your, the things you're recruiting for, you know them as an outsider, mine can be, like you say, instinctive and almost unidentifiable, but very quickly where it's within your team and you know the culture and all of those dynamics, you can very quickly hit on a judgment. So I do try to unpick those. Um, mm. Again, my diversity and inclusion background, we, we have a panel. We make sure that multiple people in here and we get all of that feedback from multiple people because we all get it wrong sometimes. And I have found myself making a judgment on somebody and then my team has come back and said, well, we thought this was particularly good. And I've had second meetings and I've, I've revisited those where perhaps I had made a quick judgment. So I, I have to be careful of that intuition. Um, but I, if somebody can communicate with you the second time round and you go back over stuff, you go, oh, I think I might have misunderstood this or we didn't cover this. If they can still communicate with you in a way that makes sense. You, I think if you can rethink that view, then at least it keeps it dynamic and appropriate um, without screening out people on you know those implicit biases that we have to try and avoid. And I think it's important, one thing I always talk about with people is it, there is a natural element that you, you potentially start to assess and pass um, 
a judgment on someone early in the interview process and it's important to park that, go through the interview process, as you say, pick it apart um, and then really come back to maybe those initial thoughts and, and see whether, you know, your feeling at this you know, early part of the interview was correct or whether the person subsequently changed that by going through the interview process and the questioning process. Um, and there's a lot of people who I've interviewed over the years that my opinion has changed at the end of a 45-minute, one-hour interview where, you know, maybe some people are just, they approach interviews differently, as we know. And, you know, it's important to be able to park that judgment at the start, go through the interview and then come back to it and see whether, um, you know, the, your initial thoughts are still the same or different. Yeah, exactly. And, and I think it comes back to that flexibility. If people can question and challenge, then you can find a way. Sometimes maybe an interview doesn't bring out those aspects. But if that's what I know I'm looking for, is it somebody who's an independent thinker and can challenge the way things are, um, then you can usually get to that after you say there's an initial perhaps judgment that's based on the wrong thing. During your career, you've managed significant size teams, as I mentioned before, and you know teams of 60, 100 people. What do you sort of think are the key attributes of an effective leader? So it's interesting. I, I have, um, if I start with the leaders I've worked for, because I think it's, it's the hardest judgment on leaders is those who are under them and who are take, following their leadership. Um, and I, the very best leaders I've worked with are available. They communicate across all levels and you can get access to them when you need to and they engage people, whether it's town halls, whether it's, and I'm going to come back to Lehman and it's clearly been a, a critical point in my career. It was an enjoyable two years. Dick Fold was on my computer screen talking to me on videos, and this was a long time ago. Well, it was certainly 12, 13 years ago, before that was normal technology, every week. Everyone knew Dick. Everyone knew Joe. Everyone knew Skip. These guys were video messaging to the bank, the whole bank, video messages that were coming out all the time about how we were doing changes. The diversity and inclusion program was just given such great airtime through those spokesmen. So I think that level of, of visibility and access actually meant that people follow you and they, they will do what you say. I think the the other thing about a really good leader is in what I've appreciated where I've had managers to do this is that air cover where you've done what you can within your role and you're escalating because you need that next bit of help. And those people who get the air cover in space play and lay the groundwork for you to keep running the charge on the ground and doing what you're doing also the best kind of people to work for and the best kind of leaders. Um, if I look at the leaders within my team, um, so people who are running you know, significant teams and reporting into me, they have similar attributes. But um, at that slightly more junior level, so where I'm talking about VT and, and maybe ED leadership levels, they also have an incredibly high level of empathy. And that maybe the senior senior leaders do, but it's less visible. But that high level of empathy and knowledge of the team and the ability to bring teams together. And I probably didn't learn to read people in those new cultures very quickly. That takes a lot of time. Um, but at least if you modify the communication style, that kind of fake it till you make it idea. Communicate the way you need to. And then slowly you start to see how you can calibrate people in those contexts. If you're going to give one piece of advice uh, to a younger version of yourself, restarting your career, what would that be? I think I'd probably give two. The first was is that I naively left university thinking that there was a career path out there and it was a, a linear thing that I would pursue. And I not only haven't found that, I've really enjoyed that that hasn't been my path. I've gained a lot from having this multi-stringed career. Um, but secondly, probably take every opportunity that interests me. 
to be brave enough to take things because they're compelling, not because you can see how they fit or because you can necessarily explain the story. The story comes afterwards. I couldn't really explain the ICAP move. It didn't fit necessarily with any career path story. I can make it make sense now, and it has followed on and it's made a lot of sense. But if I'd have tried to find the narrative without taking the opportunity that was interesting and exciting, I would have missed out on something. And I think that was true for the diversity and inclusion move as well. So, yeah, pursue interest and be brave. When you look at surveillance, one of the key sort of ongoing issues in surveillance is uh, constant false positives and using up a lot of resources and time dealing with those false positives. What what can be done from a surveillance point of view to, you know, really get to more focus on the key risks uh, and using resources better? Yeah, well, that's that's the hot, hot topic for the industry at the moment and especially post-COVID where we've seen the volume being incredibly high through periods on the trade side and on the comm side, you know, consistently high with people working from home and so much more written communications traffic. So, look, I think um, there are a number of things that need to be tried. I think the recipe is probably going to evolve across the industry over the coming years. But some of the big topics are really tightly defining the risk coverage and the scope of these programs. I think that scope has happened in surveillance. Oh, just cover this risk for me. Just put some lexicon terms in on this risk. And we haven't ended up with a very tightly defined set of risks that we're looking for and we're using these tools to identify. I think secondly is data, and it's a huge industry challenge. But the cleaner your data is, the better all of those detection services work. And you don't have to set the parameters wide in order to find the positive hits. You can actually tighten them up once you know your data is reliable. And again, the whole industry has been working on that. There are different institutions at different points. I have enough familiarity with some of the numbers to not think that anybody's really necessarily got that completely nailed down. I think there's there's more evolution to do on normalization and the appropriation of data before we're ingesting it for surveillance purposes. Um, the other slightly more controversial approach, and certainly something that I'm embedding at Standard Chartered and that we're going down a path on, of discovery on is the approach on integrated surveillance and really bringing together around product and risk type all of the different pillars of surveillance. So putting trade and written communications and voice communications and themes and deep dives all into one team of people who are product specialists, who know what risks they're looking for, who know how they risk, those risks manifest within those product areas. And using all of the surveillance tools to identify those risks. And we're on a journey, so we're not quite there. We've started the product align, but we haven't really fully integrated. But to take an analyst and turn them into an investigator who can work across all those different data sets to find that risk should, in theory, help us refine and, and again, bring down those false positives and allow us to much more effectively identify risk. Where does AI and technology take surveillance in the future, do you think? Well, they're going to have to play a critical role in that first problem of reducing false positives. Um, but I, I think at the moment, we're very early doors on AI. And and the technology, as it develops, should be able to not only reduce false positives, but hopefully will help us join dots in a way that we haven't previously done. And I talk, talked about themes earlier um, and, and bringing together themes as part of that surveillance toolkit. But if you think about what what AI and technology should, technology should allow us to do is refine those first false positives into better risk identification, 
but then also to look across them. So at the moment, if you think about what happens in surveillance, we very often will close alert by alert. And we have some ability to cluster alerts around things on intraday basis or on individual basis over short periods. But if you can leverage technology to look at where the themes are on all of those breach types across individuals and over periods of time and look at, you know, whether it's themes by desk or themes over periods of time over certain products, then we've got a much more refined approach and it will be only driven by technology because that is a big data analysis that's required. So I think that's a big area and then how we do the data analytics. The other piece, of course, is um, voice recognition and natural linguistic programming, so around how we do our communication surveillance. And as those, I think those tools are reasonably well-developed in certain sectors. If you look at Alexa, she's amazing. I seem to be able to water things that I've only spoken about in front of her. But if I apply that to my own program, I can't find the trader talking about the things that I want to know about. Um, and that really is more of a training process that the industry needs to go through to get that technology embedded in our industry and, and really useful, which should then reap huge rewards um, at the other end in terms of reducing, again, those false positives and optimising the output. Throughout your career, you've held many different senior leadership positions, which obviously carry a high level of stress and work pressure. How do you manage your work pressure and stress? Well, it's a good question. Some days, not very well, I'll confess. <laughs> um, <laughs> so COVID has been, I think, the ultimate test, um, and it's been a test of a lot of things. How do you work in isolation using only technology to communicate? Um, but also, we're working under extreme pressure. I mentioned earlier, we've got incredibly high volume. We've not necessarily been able to backfill and hire as easily or efficiently. We certainly haven't been able to train people as efficiently as we normally would, even when we have brought new people in. So um, the pressure's been acute. And we've done a few things in our team that I think have worked very well and a few things that haven't. So some of the things we've done that work very well and I've benefited from, but also I think everyone in the team has, is we've decreased the length of meetings and increased the frequency of contact. So most of my directs I would speak to Weekly, we would have a one-to-one for roughly an hour. We've completely changed the structure. I talk to all of my directs daily. We still have a longer meeting of our chunky topics, but we will have a 15-minute check-in every day, what's top of mind. And we actually saw our efficiency go up incredibly when we started to implement that. We've um, done that across the teams, and so we've got daily huddles happening in in all of the different locations um, and all of the different product teams. I think um, from a pressure perspective, the other thing is, and I didn't do this early in COVID, um, is to draw a line. Because when you're working at home, it's unfortunately very easy to roll out of bed and just check emails. And two hours later, you're still just checking emails and haven't really started the day. And it happens at the other end of the day. And again, you get that work creep where you might eat your evening meal and then just go back and see what's in the inbox or jump on a call with the US because the time is right. And you end up working from, you know, 7 o'clock in the morning potentially through until 10 o'clock at night. And although you might take breaks through the day, I don't think that's very okay. And it certainly left me feeling incredibly low energy and very exhausted. So what I've done is is I've broken my day up and I now have periods of my day blocked in my calendar. And I do have some evenings where I do calls, but I have days where I block my evening so that I can't work the evening. And I've got some days where I will not start at my desk until 9 o'clock. And again, so that I can go out and do exercise. So I think that's been a, a really important feature across our leadership team um, for making sure that that stress and pressure doesn't become overwhelming. What's your passions outside of work? Um, 
Well, it's turned out, and again, COVID has tested this, but there's always been an interest and a passion. But um, when you're at home all day and the fridge is there and you can cook in the evenings, um, it's become even more of a passion. Um, but no, I really enjoy it. I'm, I've always been a, a broad and experimental eater. And actually, four years ago, I went vegan uh, and had to relearn everything, relearn how to cook and how to prepare things and how to eat a balanced diet and, and all of it changed. Um, and I am now... Unfortunately, I sit a little, but I'm sort of a vegetarian at the moment. And again, you just I've relearned my cooking style and approach and things I like to eat sort of a couple of times over with those changes. So I love that. And uh, I love our almost long forgotten hobby of travel, which I'm sure we're all missing greatly, um, which in Asia is an easy thing to pursue usually. <laughs> Emily, thank you so much for a fantastic insight uh, into your career journey, leadership, mentoring. And also sharing your thoughts around surveillance and and improvements that can be made there and the impact of AI and technology uh, within that space. Really appreciate your time today. That's a pleasure. Thank you for having me on the show, Mark. Thanks for listening to the show. We encourage you to subscribe and feel free to share, rate us and leave a review. If there's anything you'd specifically like us to cover, email us at markenticott at bowenpartners.com. Thank you.